If you are vulnerable to psychic damage from roguish language, stay away from these gibbering mouths. But if you intend on listening to this podcast about enriching your fantastical group hallucinations, you're too far gone already. We are the brothers, both DMs and players. I'm the one that prefers using overwhelming hordes, Travis. And I'm the one who likes a single, well-placed baddie, Jordan. Welcome to the Hook and Chance podcast, releasing your multitudes of monsters with laser beams on their heads for incredible <laughs> games. That's a lot going on. You uh, you put that one in there, eh? <laughs> well, it's a callback to one of the one of the greatest sharks with freaking laser beams on their heads. <laughs> Fair enough. So today we are talking about monsters, man, and specifically to the monsters, man. So what makes an encounter with monsters feel terrifying, Jordan? Well, it's got to be in the dark. They've got to have a lot of limbs and <laughs> they're... <laughs> They've got to be hiding from me. Drool, some kind of mucus going yeah. on. Yeah. They definitely can't be friendly. <laughs> well, we are tremendously excited to introduce Keith Amon to the podcast. He's the brilliant creator, author, and blogger of the wildly popular The Monsters Know What They're Doing. Each entry that he puts onto his blog takes a super deep dive into an individual monster, and he figures out what makes them unique and analyzes ways to make them more dangerous, more real. <laughs> yeah. Just all that good stuff. That gritty stuff that just makes your players go, oh shit. <laughs> yeah. You know, it makes the world feel more deep and real and rich. And it just gives me so many ideas to spin off of. So rather than just keep talking about them, here he is. Uh, welcome, Keith. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. Uh, what are we stealing your attention away from tonight? Binge watching Game of Thrones, which. Uh... Uh, we came to it late, so we are uh, just going through it now. We're in season six, working our way through Stranger Things. We're binging Stranger Things. How do you keep yourself away from all of the spoilers that are floating out there? By just not caring that much. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, uh, actually, most of the people in my Twitter feed have been pretty respectful about not spoiling things. Yeah. You have written... Live to Tell the Tale, which is an introduction to combat tactics for D&D players. And of course, you're the, the blog writer for the Monsters Know What They're Doing. Incredibly well-rounded. And you have a lot of background. You have a degree in education, BAs in journalism and photography. Uh, what, what don't you do? <laughs> <laughs> I've always been interested in a lot of different things, just hoovering up trivia here and there studying whatever interesting things come across my path. We didn't mention uh, I'm, I'm a big language nut, linguistics nut. Okay. Uh, I, you know, it doesn't work its way into the stuff I've written for the D&D community, but it definitely works its way into my games. That's oh, awesome. Sure, yeah. That's got to be really fun. Mostly it's a cultural thing. I like to use real-world cultures and real-world languages as a proxy for in-game cultures and in-game languages. So when I want to have, for example, an Uthgart barbarian saying something that the players won't understand, I'll actually translate it into Swedish and say it in Swedish. And, and, uh, <laughs> That's know, awesome. Our that, kind of people. Sort of right on. Well, we'll get to know Keith a little bit more in the Heroes stage in our first segment, and then we're going to move over to the Strategy Stateroom where we're going to learn some of Keith's principles we can apply to characters and to monsters. 
And then we're going to wrap up with the Proven Grounds, where we're going to get specific with some of the gold that he's bringing to the table. Right on. Let's move on to the Heroes stage. This is the Heroes stage, where fantastic folk have a spotlight turned to them to tell the tales of their adventurous lives. How would you describe your role-playing related work to people? Well, number one, I write the blog, The Monsters Know What They're Doing, which is an overview of monster tactics, ways to get the most out of the various traits and features in the stat block. I see it primarily as a prep aid, because if you don't go into a session having some idea of how you are going to use those traits and features on the monster's behalf or the NPC's behalf, you can choke in the moment. You can just kind of lose sight of which ways of using those traits and features are the most effective and end up providing what, what could end up as a kind of a subpar experience for your players. You know, if, if a monster is too much of a pushover, it's not satisfying. One of the things I say and live to tell the tale is that DMs have a rep for wanting to kill our players. And that's not the truth. You know, we want to be tough but fair. We want to give players a challenge that gives them enough of a thrill to feel like they really earned the victory. So would you say if a DM has thrown a monster at a group of players and it felt like it just kind of came up lacking, that maybe there's an opportunity to do a little bit more in-depth analysis and probably hit up your blog? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, but that's why I began doing the blog in the first place, because I experienced that firsthand in my own game. I had some combats that just felt lackluster. And I thought, okay, what am I missing here? What am I not realizing about how this step block has been put together? that I should be realizing so that I can give that experience that I meant to give my players. And I talk about that in Live to Tell the Tale, too. Situational decisions and standing decisions. Standing decisions being certain things like, I'm going to use this spell, this area effect spell, when I can catch four or more opponents in the area of effect. If I can only catch three, forget it. I'm not going to waste the spell slot on it. I'm going to wait for a better opportunity. I'm going to wait until I can get four. And that's a standing decision. I've already decided it. I don't have to make that decision anymore during the game. So I'm saving myself a little bit of cognitive load. I loved that tip specifically. And yeah, the more I thought about it, the more, I mean, that applies to life. But when you take it into Dungeons and Dragons, like you said, it makes every decision that much quicker. And that's something that we always struggle with at the table is just... Let's get these combats to be fun and efficient. And it's something that applies really to every area of expertise. You put in the hours to learn how to do something. You gain hours and, and months and years of experience, and eventually certain things become second nature. You don't have to think about them anymore in the moment. And we, the, the dungeon masters, we, the players, we have these monsters, these NPCs, these PCs, and we know a certain amount about them, but we don't live in their skin 24-7. Yeah. We just we just climb into them during the session. But if you're a player, for example, and you have your PC, you may not spend all your time thinking about when is it the right time for your wizard to cast a chromatic orb. But your wizard's been thinking a lot about <laughs> when 
you know, he or she should be casting chromatic orb and which element to use for the damage and, and so forth. It, it kind of behooves you, the player, outside the game session once in a while to just climb into your PC's skin and think, what is my character thinking about how to use their traits, their features, their spells, and so forth? And how can you bring that to the game in a way that keeps this beloved, precious character you've created alive in a, <laughs> in a perilous situation? Well, and like you said, you know, you might be thinking about this once or twice a month for a couple of hours at a time, but they've been spending their whole lives uh, getting ready for that moment that they need to cast Chromatic Orb. Right. Yeah. And your book did such a good job at, like, usually the way I put together a character is I choose some abilities and some feats that I hope go together well. But the way your book is designed just helped me go down that train of thought with so much more clarity. Like I could see building a character from the ground up and knowing their strategies because I built it kind of following the steps that you go through. So Yeah, yeah but, you know, honestly, I don't build characters like that at all. Oh, I'm, no? a, I'm a real role player. I'm not a spade player. I'm a heart player. <laughs> and I will come up with a PC that reminds me of a character from literature or I'll just get a phrase in my head. I'll start wondering something. I created a character, a paladin, just stepping off from the question, why are paladins always gorgeous? Why are they always, you know, handsome, hair blowing in the wind, shiny armor? Well groomed. Um, yeah. You know, they're all Prince Valiant out there. Well, you know, of course, you know, it comes from the fact that you've always had to have a very high charisma to play a paladin. Right. But charisma is not just looks. It's not just oratory. And so I, I just got the phrase ugly paladin in <laughs> and I ran with it. I'm like, I want to know what happens if I try to create an ugly paladin. What kind of character does this turn into? You know, I'll make the character from a purely RP perspective. And then I go into the features and say, okay, now that I've created this person, how do I maximize this person's effectiveness? Yeah, and then there's so much more unique tactically, I would imagine, than if you were to kind of take it through the, you know, most logical steps as you go. Yeah, I mean, some people are min-maxers, and that's great for them. I'm I'm not a min-maxer. Yeah. I'm I'm a, I'm a role player at heart, and you know, you you might not get that from reading the blog necessarily, but I want to make the monsters and the NPCs feel organic and plausible. I want there to be verisimilitude and I want to help players who might be, you know, very RP centric like myself, keep their PCs alive because, you know, gosh darn it, they love them. So <laughs> put a lot of work Absolutely. into them. Don't want to, don't want to break their hearts. <laughs> Once I'd been writing the monsters know for a while, I started to feel kind of guilty because people were sending me comments about how they nearly got a TPK using my tactics. And I'm like, <laughs> Oh, Oh, those poor players. I want to help them now. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's, so that's why I wrote live to tell the tale. Nice. Cause like, okay, I got, you know, my, my sense of fairness, I have to balance the scales here. Fight back, people. And doing, kind of taking that approach, like you said, it really mitigates all of that metagaming potential. Like, if you do create a character for the roleplay purposes, you know, like you said, your character 
has been studying this for years. So if you create a character with a very roleplay heavy bent to it, like that's that's the foundation of the character, then you can do a bit of that meta side and how would my player fight and how would they behave in combat. And you can really do that deep dive that I think satisfies or would likely satisfy a lot of the min-maxers need to strategize. Like that's where min-maxing comes from. How can I strategize? It's a different kind of metagaming. Instead of metagaming that brings in knowledge that your character would not have and trying to gain an edge that way, it's more trying to utilize all the knowledge that your PC does have. From a lifetime of being them. From Exactly, yeah. Might even be knowledge that they have and you don't. Yeah, true enough. So from your background of being an admitted generalist, um, is that why this work appeals to you? Well, I have um, I have a friend, a longtime fellow player. He's We've been friends for more than 30 years, and he is a fountain of creativity. It just comes <laughs> up with the most mind-bending stuff. And I'm creative, but I'm not creative in that way. I don't have that kind of brain that can envision amazing things out of the blue and bring them forth into the world like Athena from the brow of Zeus, you know, but he's DM'd for me. I've DM'd for him. So I've got to compete with this. And the way I do it is I play to my own strength, which is verisimilitude. I want everything to feel real. I want things to make sense. Then on those few occasions when something doesn't make sense, I want that to feel weird and unsettling. I want to use that and, and do it on purpose. My friend is is a demiurge. I'm a remixer. <laughs> Idea, I take ideas that other people have had, and I use them to give me inspiration and direction and foundation to build on. And that's absolutely where the monsters know what they're doing came from. I want monsters to behave how they behave if they were real. Yeah. So that the, so that the players really believe in it. Well, that's us to a T as well. Like we prefer to take from reality so much too. And <laughs> sometimes we have those sparks of inspiration, but most of the time we're the same. We're not like your friend. I've got uh, someone similar that I know. How did your love for role-playing games start in the first place to get you to the point where tactics were the thing that you focused on? I got my first D&D set when I was 10 in... 1979 this was the uh, hoffman box the blue box okay the first basic set i read about it in games magazine i'm like mom this sounds amazing we gotta try this she got the basic set for me and we opened it up and we could not figure out what to do with it we had no <laughs> idea it sat on the shelf for the longest time <laughs> and it wasn't until high school that i got together with a group of friends who had actually figured out what we were supposed to be doing with all this stuff and and began playing we had a very tight group at the end of high school, early college, there were four of us. We all cycled through the dungeon master role, and uh, we had a set of four characters. And whenever one of us was DMing, we played our own character as an NPC. My my friend, who I who I described to you, was first in the rotation. I was last, so I I got to see three different examples of how to DM before I tried it myself, which I think was good. It exposed me to different approaches before I ever tried it the first time, and it got me realizing how many different ways there are to do this, thinking about, well, what, what kind of way do I want my way to be? Yeah. And I've always carried that. But the tactical thing, we had plan A and plan B. Plan A was get them, and plan B was run. <laughs> and yeah. it wasn't really until 5th edition that I got 
into the tactical side of things. And there were some big shifts that had happened in between. I had started studying chess. I had always played chess, but I had never played chess well. And it was one of those things where I, I didn't know there were basics beyond the basics. I think getting a Master of Education degree really got me thinking a lot more about how to learn. Okay. And once I learned how to learn, then I was able to begin analyzing my chess game and figuring out what was missing. Are you familiar with the computer game XCOM, Enemy Unknown? Yes. I got that game, I started playing it, and I was just getting massacred, ruined every time. <laughs> and I wasn't even playing on a, on a high difficulty setting. It was just normal difficulty, and I was just getting pasted. And I, I'm like, okay, I'm missing something. Yeah. What if I just do a little bit of a dip into real-world small unit tactics? Wow. And see if this helps me in the game. And it did. It, <laughs> it, it, it changed my XCOM game overnight. And then it was just a runaway. You know, so so then when I noticed the same thing was happening in my D&D game, I was able to then take that kind of similar approach and look at the stat blocks of the monsters and ask myself, okay, what's here that I haven't really paid as much attention to? And that's when I really began to notice how systematic 5th edition D&D is. It is very internally consistent in a way that 1st edition and 2nd edition weren't. They were Houston with everything just sprawling everywhere, no rhyme or reason to it. And 5th edition, in comparison, is like L'Enfant's Washington, D.C. or Baron Haussmann's Paris. It's all thought out. Mm. It's all organized. And you can start to see how these emergent properties of the tactics, not, not just how things interact in 5e, but you get the sense they were meant to interact that way. These, this is what the designers had in mind all along. You know, they must have had the notion when they created the concept of advantage and disadvantage that when these things exist, monsters and PCs and everyone and everything, if they have a way to give themselves an advantage, they'll use it. Yeah. Part of being successful in combat, which is supposedly one of these three co-equal pillars of the game alongside social interaction and exploration. But when you look at how tightly rule-governed combat is relative to those other two pillars, you know they were really putting a lot of thought into making this run like a machine. Yeah. So I got interested in how the machine worked. Yeah, it all went from there. Very cool. Let's talk about what you would tell someone kind of just diving in to the whole D&D experience, like what would you hope that your books really offer somebody who's, say, fresh to D&D? Well, for a dungeon master, think about your monsters and NPCs as independent, conscious entities with their own drives, their own ways of doing things, and let them be themselves, you know? Just send them out there and, and let the execution of the traits and features in these stat blocks give them character. For players... Look at your own PC, examine what their strengths are, figure out where in the party formation they belong, what uh, position they play, so to speak. And once you've figured it out, commit to that. Make that part of your practice as playing that character. If you've identified that your character is a frontline fighter, then have them embrace that frontline fighter role 
fully. If they are a supporter, they are always a supporter. Figure out also what your companion's strengths are, the other PCs in your party, and think about how you're going to synergize with them. Yeah. How you're going to use your abilities to multiply theirs and their abilities to multiply yours. Oh, I love those moments. They're so good. What do you think the community has responded with? Like, how have you found the reaction working through your blog and putting all this out there? Oh, man, what what blew my mind was when I was looking at my site stats and noticing that at certain times they took little jumps up in traffic and realizing that a lot of that traffic was coming from Reddit, of all places. There are several subreddits, D&D, D&D Next, DM Academy, the Matt Colville subreddit. I was getting lots of traffic from that. And when I went back and followed these links to just, you know, see what links are people following to get to my blog, people are saying things like, read this site. This site answers your question. Oh my God, <laughs> I always go to that site first. And I hadn't consciously set out to make a reference work, but people had begun using it that way. Yeah. And it's how we use it. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, it was surprising, but gratifying. Is there anything that you thought it would turn into when you started it? No. no. Honestly, I was just doing it to do it. If, if I had any plan, it was kind of to try to create a repository of tactics for myself, really. Yeah. But I also thought once I'm creating these things, I might as well share them with other people. You know? Selfish absolutely. to keep it all to myself. <laughs> yes, Absolutely. And speaking of, of which, in addition to your resource, what other like resources out there do you love, whether it be a podcast or different blogs? I don't do a lot of outside research for the most part, partly because I've been doing this for more than 30 years. I do enjoy occasionally watching uh, WebDM Dale Kingsmill. When I see they when I see they've put out videos on topics that I'm interested in, yeah. I'll play those videos. But not regularly, really. I do my work at home. I don't have a car commute. I don't have a mass transit commute, so I don't really listen to podcasts. I spend huge chunks of my time either writing things or reading things. And I can't really do that and listen to something at the same time. Yeah, no, that's I'll, fair. Which is a shame because I know there are a lot of great podcasts out there. It's just not something that I myself have have taken a lot of advantage of. Uh, but, you know, I do watch some actual play streaming. I started doing that about a year and a half ago just because I thought I want to watch some other Dungeon Masters in action and see if there's anything that I can learn to improve my game by watching them. It's it's going to sound hackneyed, but the one I really stuck with is Critical Role. And I have to give that show a lot of credit because not only is Matt Mercer a great DM in, in the mold of my friend who is so imaginative, but uh, I've stolen a lot of little tricks from him that have helped me improve my game. And you can tell they've really put a lot of thought into how to produce a game stream that's fun for them, but also watchable for their audience. I've watched a couple of very popular shows with very good production values and, and one of them with fantastic dm really top tier that i just couldn't get into because the players kept talking over each other and breaking character to crack jokes and and i'm watching either because i want to study the dm for techniques that i can use or because the characters and the story grab me critical role does both of those things for me especially in campaign two so i watch it for entertainment but i also kind of think of it as class time a little bit yeah yeah, yeah no i totally get that and they make more than enough to watch so no worries on I can barely <laughs> anymore yeah well, before we move on, do you have a favorite monster to play? 
I don't have a single favorite monster to play, but I will say I, I have a personal emotional attachment to the Bodak from Volo's Guide to Monsters. Oh. The reason for this is an interaction between two things. One is that its features interact in a really interesting way. And it's it's a it's a way that's very damned if you do, damned if you don't for the players. It challenges them to find a way through this thing, past this thing. But also, I found it at exactly the moment when I ran into some unscripted territory with my main game, and I needed to create on the spur of the moment an antagonist, something for the... Uh, it was a side quest for our barbarian. They were trying to unite the Uthgart tribes, and they're out with the Blue Bear tribe, and the Blue Bear tribe, in order to win their allegiance, they're saying, well, you got to take care of this problem for us, right? It's, you know, it's standard D&D quest stuff. And uh, you got to take care of this thing for us. And the Bodak was the thing that I found. And it just slotted so perfectly into that moment, that particular narrative need that I had. It, it sticks in my mind for me as particularly memorable because of that. And also, it's just a really cool illustration. I mean, you look at that thing. And that is a creepy illustration. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> the, the art makes or breaks it for me sometimes. Yeah, Coming from AD&D as I do, you know, I've got that standard list of undead creatures in my head. Skeleton, zombie, ghost, mummy, ghast, ghoul, white, wraith. <laughs> You're vampire, good with that. Holy smokes. Right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, so that's like, those are the ones everyone is going to know. They are the go-tos. And here's an undead creature that is entirely outside that, something completely new. It was new to me, it was new to my players, and I, I just love it for that. Yeah, right yes. on. Well, cool. Let's uh, talk more, obviously, about some monsters, and we're going to go over to the Strategy Stateroom. All right. This is the Strategy Stateroom, where inventive and cunning tactics are crafted for when they're needed most. All right, so we wanted to dive into your process in this segment, and we'll have you guide us through some of your tactics just to help us wrap our heads around it as we go. We wanted to apply it to some simple monsters. Some of the simplest are those typically throwaway monsters like goblins and kobolds, but there's still a lot to do with them. A brief overview that we'll get into each of these five, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we've got combat style, comparative advantages, tactical combinations, action economy, and flexibility or survival instinct. Okay, well, the first thing I always look at is the ability scores. And in writing the monsters know what they're doing, I came up with the phrase ability contour to describe where are their abilities spiky? What, what are the peaks? What are the abilities that stand up? So for example, if you look at a goblin, its ability contour has one peak. That peak is on dexterity. Yeah. Okay, so right off the bat, you know that if, if a creature is playing to its strengths and trying to circumvent its own weaknesses, okay, a goblin is a kind of monster that is going to have a very dexterity-heavy fighting style. It's going to be maybe a, uh, a sniper or a, a shock attacker that moves fast, does damage, and then gets away, something like that. 
So some of the terms that I use, my understanding is that there were earlier editions of D&D that used terms like brute, minion, things like that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I use some of those terms, but maybe not necessarily in the same way. I use it, I use it in my own way. But to me, a brute is basically a melee-focused tank. They engage, they punch it out, they tank it out. They are stationary for the most part. They absorb damage rather than trying to avoid it. And they focus on strength-based attacks. So a creature or a character with an ability contour that has peaks in strength and constitution is going to be a brute. Mm. Uh, A monster or an NPC that peaks in dexterity and constitution is going to be more of a skirmisher or an attrition fighter where they're not doing a lot of damage necessarily in each hit, but they can both avoid and absorb damage. They're also often very mobile rather than stationary, you know, like like a swashbuckler kind of character. Would have that kind of uh, ability contour. If there's a high peak in charisma and they have one or more social skills, then chances are they're going to be willing to talk as much as they are to fight. If the peak is in a mental ability, but they don't have the social skill, but they have spell casting, then obviously the spell casting is going to be the focus of their fighting style. And even their Um, interactions sometimes. Yeah. So if you look at the goblin, for example, low strength, high dex, they have a scimitar, they have a short bow, they're probably really going to focus on using the short bow. And they're not going to want to engage in melee if they don't have to. So the scimitar is almost superfluous. Unless you're confronting them in a goblin lair, they're able to mob you in a choke point. Then they might use their scimitars. But for the most part, if you like encounter them out in the woods or something, they're going to be scattered, they're going to be hiding, and they're going to be sniping at you with the bows. So then you look at skills. If you see stealth as a skill, they're going to use that. They have proficiency in that. They're going to they're going to use it. They're going to try to do ambushes. Stay they're hidden. Going to they're going to try to stay hidden and, and gain unseen attacker advantage, things like that. Senses, dark vision. This is where we get into uh, my use of the phrase comparative advantage. What I mean by it when, when I use that phrase is simply, if I have a feature that you don't have, mm. I'm going to look for conditions that favor that feature. So if I have dark vision and you don't, I want to fight you in the dark so that I can see and you can't. So they're going to take your torches and things like that. Maybe. Or that, you know, if they, if they're not going to ambush you during the day, they're going to ambush you at night. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you, if I have the ability to fly and I have a feature, like for example, the Periton's flyby that allows me to avoid opportunity attacks and you can't fly, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to stay in the air. I'm going to fly down on my turn, attack you, fly away. You don't get an opportunity attack against me, and I'll stay up in the air where you can't reach me. Yeah, and that's how I'm going to fight you. They're not going um, toe to toe because that's the advantage that I have over you. And then, and then it's a matter of looking at the 
specific features, the ones that follow all the boilerplate stuff, like uh, for goblins, the nimble escape, bonus action, disengage, or hide. Action economy is a really important concept in 5th edition, just on the basis of the fact that everyone has an action and movement on their turn, but some monsters or characters have bonus actions. Not all, just some. And so when you think about that, you realize that bonus actions are really important because they are another source of comparative advantage. That's time advantage. You can do more on your turn with a bonus action. And so if a creature has a bonus action, it's going to exploit that advantage. If a goblin can attack and disengage or attack and hide or dash and disengage in the same turn, it's just like the rogue's cunning action when you look at it from the PC's point of view. It's, it's the same deal. It's that thing that gives you an edge. So a typical goblin in combat, it's going to start hiding behind something like a tree. It's going to poke its head out, shoot at you with advantage because it was stealthed and you didn't see it. And mm -hmm. then it's going to say, okay, well, now you know where I am. So I'm going to use my movement to run over here to this other place of cover, get behind it so that you can't see me clearly anymore, and use my bonus action to hide again. So now you've lost me, and you can't fight back. That's what goblin combat is going to be like. It's going to be guerrilla warfare. It's going to be very hit and run. You were talking about comparing goblins and kobolds. Kobolds can't do that. Kobolds have only one feature, pack tactics. So that is going to color how kobolds fight. They are not going to do this hit and run thing. What they're going to do is swarm you. They're trying to get in close rather than, yeah, okay. Not only get in close, but get in close in groups because that's what gives them the advantage is, is being next to another one of their kind. They also have very low strength. They are weak, which is a weakness, and they, they have very few hit points. So those are weaknesses they have to make up with in numbers. <laughs> and so they are never going to attack you one-on-one. -on -one. You know, a, a group of five kobolds should never be attacking a group of five PCs. Yeah. Or, Ten or 15 or 20 kobolds at once will attack five PCs because that's how kobolds work. Yeah. The mistake I always made as an early DM was splitting them up to focus on different characters, too. And they would never do that. <laughs> right. Like if you one in my article on kobold tactics, if there are three kobolds fighting you, Let's say you're a uh, big, beefy frontline fighter and, and they're triple teaming you and you manage to take down two of them. That third kobold is not going to stick around. <laughs> he's going to get he's going to get out of there and it's going to join up with some other kobold somewhere else or it's just going to flee. Yeah. But it is not going to stay there fighting you one on one because kobolds don't do that. Yeah. And that's your flexibility slash survival instinct is what do they do when they're really pressed? Yeah, so, you know, if you look at intelligence and wisdom, what do those mean for characters who aren't wizards and aren't clerics and don't cast spells? Intelligence is being able to analyze a situation and think about it in a logical way. Wisdom is your intuition about the situation and also your, your prudence, your judgment. So intelligence is for me when i analyze these things intelligence tells me how flexible are they in their tactics 
can they recognize when something is going wrong? Hmm. Can they have two or three different modes of operation in their heads and know when they need to switch from one to another? Can they accurately assess who the real threats are on the other side? Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. And you know, and with... wisdom is: do they know when to run? <laughs> yeah. You know, do they know? Do they know when they're in a losing battle and should stop and try to talk their way out of it? And that's not to say an intelligent creature doesn't have the ability to fight. You know, even if you were to suggest that, say, kobolds had a really, really, really low intelligence, they might have just a, a fighting style that they've always done. And, and that has always worked for them, whether it's taking down an adventurer or taking down, let's just say for, for sake of argument, a wild boar. But when pressed with an adventuring party that has stuff that maybe they've never seen, what happens then? Do they, do they scatter? Do they run? Do they, you know? Yeah. And, and another, you know, another kind of a rule of thumb I have is a creature or character with high intelligence can form conclusions about you by looking at your weapons and armor, by looking at your style, your behavior, something with an intelligence of seven or lower, it's going to base its entire assessment of you based on how big you are. <laughs> That's it. It's not going to, it's not going to know anything else. It's yeah. like, is it big or is it small? If it's small, I can eat it. Um, <laughs> That's where playing that beef wizard comes in handy. <laughs> <laughs> so your, your final point here is really tactical combinations. So how yeah. does that work? Yeah, there's not really that much to look for. There's just a lot of different ways it can happen. A very simple example is the Battlemaster Fighter's trip attack maneuver. It, it actually doesn't really work as a combo until you get to level five and get extra attack. That's, that's the thing that makes it an effective combo, and then it's a no-brainer. So you use trip attack on your first attack, and you have that chance to knock your opponent prone. If you succeed and you're within five feet, if you're not within five feet already, you get within five feet. And then you have advantage on your follow-up attack. When they're prone, so, right? Yeah. When they're prone, yeah. That would be the tactically correct way to use it. The tactically incorrect way to use it would be to use the trip attack as a finishing move. You mm -hmm. don't gain anything. You don't gain anything from that because once your turn is over and their turn comes around, they just stand back up. So when you have that timing advantage of being able to attack twice and potentially knock them prone with that first attack, that's when you use it to try to knock them prone so that you can gain the advantage on attack roll from, be from their being prone. Right. So a combination is going to be any pair of things you can do in which the first thing you do makes the second thing better. Either it gives you advantage on the attack roll, or maybe the first thing you do gives your opponent disadvantage on a saving throw that you can then force them to make with your second thing that you do. And you... often monsters have a few features and they're, like you said, there's likely a very intelligent combo there if you do one before the other that really right. pairs well together versus there's, there might be an alternative. And you're talking right. also about a fighter being in singular combat and working with himself, but you add another character that can do melee and at earlier levels you're able to use those similar combinations i'll tell you i gotta say one of the greatest things about fifth edition 
is I, I never imagined in my life that I would want to play a fighter <laughs> in a D&D game. It's just not an interesting class to me. Fifth edition created fighters the way I would want to play them. And that that is just an amazing accomplishment for me. I think it's one of the greatest things D&D ever did was to introduce the Battlemaster fighter. Fighters redeemed. Um, <laughs> that is a that is a thinking person's fighter, and I love it. So let's say you've got a Battlemaster fighter with Commander Strike, and you're fighting alongside, maybe you've got a, a barbarian ally or uh, some kind of marksman ally, like a, like a ranger, and they've got uh, a better chance to hit than you do, or when they hit, they deal more damage than you do. You use Commander Strike to pass it to them. It's like you, you basically you're basically taking one of your attacks and making it as good as one of theirs by just letting them do it. Yeah, the Battlemaster Fighter is is a really cool subclass. I think it's one that I have never had the chance to really dive deeply into, but it's always appealed to me because yeah, you you can kind of see from the outset that this is a very very different approach to a fighter. Oh yeah, if you look at the Ranger and the uh, first level spells that the Ranger has, I'm thinking in particular of Hail of Thorns. Okay, Hail of Thorns cast as a bonus action, really important. Take that bonus action at the beginning of your turn because when you then use your action to make an attack, the spell can discharge immediately if you hit. Versus if you attack and then you say, oh, and uh, as a bonus action, I cast Hail of Thorns. Okay, well, now you're not going to be able to use it until your next turn. And in the intervening time, something might hit you, break your concentration, you've lost it, you've lost the spell slot, you're worse off than you were before. So the timing really matters with that. Yeah. Uh, if you're a, a druid with uh, the shillelagh cantrip, or if you're a wizard with magic weapon, those are all bonus actions that you really need to take at the beginning of your turn rather than the end, because that's the way the timing makes sense. Totally. Well... Yeah, that's just, I mean, even that one point is so, so important to use, you know, specific abilities at specific times. And you can only do that by really going through, you know, either a monster or a character in depth. And I guess before we move on to our next segment, we should probably just kind of recap what those five steps really were. Um, so for those of you keeping track, combat style is just one of those ability contours. So, you know, Keith, you have here frontline fighter, shock attacker. Are they a skirmisher, a marksman, a supporter, or a spell slinger? And, and those are the ones I use for player characters. My, my, the ones I use for monsters are a little bit different, yeah. but the basic concepts are the same. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Like how how do they sit best based on those stats that they've already been given? And then you take out so much of the humming and hawing when you're wondering what to do. Do the thing you're good at. Yeah. You've got comparative advantages. So looking at what they do, you know, going back to the goblin example, they've got dark vision and they're real small. So where are they going to fight you? At night and in dark corners. <laughs> or like you said, out in the open where they can actually get some ranged attacks that work towards their decks. You're looking at an action economy where the goblins are taking their bonus action as much as they can to move around and keep their enemies confused. And wriggle. <laughs> I gotta say, I built a uh, a goblin with the bardic college that is basically Jester that makes tumbling that much better. And, and holy crap, you can't hit the little <laughs> bastard. Uh, <laughs> so then you've got uh, flexibility and survival instinct. 
So, you know, what, what they need to do to survive. And then finally, those tactical combinations. And how do they synergize well with themselves and their own abilities or synergize with others within their group? Those weak little suckers. <laughs> well, great. Uh, Keith, let's move on to the Proving Grounds. This is the Proving Grounds, where colorful characters are put to the test, becoming champions or outcasts. Okay, so welcome to the Proving Grounds, Keith. What we thought we would try to do here with you is really kind of take a look at uh, at a particular character and kind of work through the exact same framework and structure that you that we just talked about. So for this segment, let's take a look at a particular fighter. This uh, this character that we've we've created. His name is Zerus. He's a Goliath fighter. And he needs a little help because Travis plays him and uh, I'm kind of ruthless with all your tactics. You weren't supposed to out me. <laughs> yes, he is ruthless um, now that he's armed with all of your knowledge. So help me out, Keith. Make me stronger. Okay. Well, first of all, looking at uh, your ability scores here, your your contour is a frontliner contour. The peaks are in strength and constitution. So um, strength is going to be your primary offensive ability constitution is going to be your primary defensive ability primary defense is always going to be either dex or con and it's it's a simple question are you trying mainly to absorb damage or to avoid it so this character here is clearly designed to absorb damage which means he can be played as a tank he can be he can be sent up to the front line he can take hits He'll probably have very good armor, which will enhance his ability to take hits even more. And he's going to deal damage using a basic strength-based melee weapon. So, so we're talking about his combat style right now. Yeah, the ability contour is what determines the combat role. Generally, this person is going to go out in front, straight up to roughly the center of the battlefield, wherever that happens to be, and just start engaging opponents immediately should not worry about engaging more than one at a time basically you're like like in a football game you are the defensive line you're you're a blocker you are trying to keep the enemies from getting past you to attack the more fragile characters behind you and in the process you're occupying their attention by dealing as much damage as you can with your strength-based weapon so you carry a long sword, that's fine. Warhammer, that's fine. Uh, leather, I would wear heavier armor. Um, <laughs> I would wear, for the frontline role, wear all the armor you can afford because you're proficient in it. And the more you've got, the more it helps you. You're not trying to dodge blows, so you don't need the dex bonus to your armor class that you would get from lighter medium armor. You know, maybe if you want to try to happy medium it, you would go to something in the higher end of medium armor. But really, I mean, this character should be wearing chain scale plate, maybe a breastplate. Well, and with um, that powerful build, you have the ability to, I mean, you can wear a lot of armor and still have uh, the ability to carry a little bit more. Like, that's not necessarily a concern. Yeah. yeah. If he's in the middle of combat and his party is 
under duress somewhere else, he's kind of aiming to get between them and their enemies, not focusing on on damage output, like you're saying, right? Well, now, see, here's here's the thing. When you talk about him being engaged in one place and other people in danger somewhere else, that's why you need a variety of roles in the party, because it's not really the frontliner's role to run to the back line and deal with, you know, a, a skirmisher who's managed to slip past you and harass your spellcasters in the back. You're trying to keep the people from rushing you from rushing them directly. Okay. Somebody else's job is to protect the back. And to a certain extent, the people in the back are expected to protect themselves. That's why they tend to rely more on dexterity mm. as a primary defensive ability because they need to they need to be able to dodge attacks and get away. I'm looking at the things he's carrying. He's got a dagger, he's got some arrows. He's not going to use those much. He's he's not really a ranged attack. You might keep a throwing weapon or two on hand just for situations where enemies simply refuse to get within your melee reach. Yeah. Like if you had to fight goblins or if you had to fight peritons, then you might want a spear or some javelins or, or throwing axes, hand axes, something like that. Worst but thing to forget the as only, a fighter. <laughs> the only ranged weapons you're ever going to use are ones you can throw. Yeah. So when he is focusing on dishing out damage, I mean, he's up there soaking it in. Are there any advantages that he can get from his build? or? Well, let's see. Do we know uh, what martial archetype Zerus has chosen yet? Because I don't see it here. He's level three. So here's the twist on this character, and it's why you don't see his uh, archetype, is because he actually got a little weird with it and dipped into Barbarian as that third level. Ah, so he's not a level three fighter. He's a level two fighter with level one Barbarian. That's right. There you go. It it offers you um, a little bit of extra damage when you're raging. But beyond that, it doesn't really offer much enhancement. Actually, I take it back. It gives you one comparative advantage, which is that when you're raging, damage is halved. So you can tank more. Yeah. And um, the unarmored defense side. Yeah, but that doesn't really change what you were doing to begin with. Now, when you go level two barbarian, you pick up reckless attack. That's almost a trap choice for this guy. Yeah. Because as a frontline fighter, more often than any of the other combat roles, the frontline fighter is often going to be engaging multiple weaker enemies at once. And the thing about reckless attack, it's a risk-reward calculation. Right. It f- favors you when you have more outgoing attacks than incoming attacks. And it hurts you when there are more incoming attacks than outgoing attacks. So if you are up at the front line, let's say you're, uh, you're fighting some gnolls, and you're trying to fight off three gnolls at once and you don't have extra attack yet. So when you take your attack action, you get one attack. You take reckless attack, you have advantage on that attack, but then you've got three incoming attacks that all have advantage against you. Yeah. So you see how that can become a trap choice. You think you're getting the advantage from reckless attack, but you're not thinking about how much advantage it's giving to the other side. Mm -hmm. So that's that choice that you build into your character ahead of time, and you know that going in, so then you're not... yeah. Not That's a standing with decision with, right. with reckless attack is 
I'm going to use reckless attack when I am making as many or more attacks than the opponents. That's when I gain something from it. Well, I feel like that's pretty thorough already. I'm trying to figure out if we missed anything. <laughs> but now, 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 given that you've done this, um, <laughs> this foolish, foolish thing, Travis. Oh, no, yeah, but you know, it's it's maybe you had a role playing reason for doing it. In yeah. which case, great, more power to you. I'm always in favor of even crazy role playing decisions. Actually, now that I think about it, hang on. There is one other thing: advantage on strength checks. Right. When you're raging, so. You can make this guy a grappler if you want. He's going to be good at grappling. And one of the really cheap and dirty stunts (laughs) that I've realized that you can do with a barbarian. Let's say you are fighting on a rocky ledge somewhere or up in the rigging of a ship or in, in, you know, on the upper floor of a building with an atrium. Okay. And you have that level in barbarian and you can grapple. You grapple your enemy, and then you jump. You're going to take falling damage. They're going to take falling damage, but that's just straight bludgeoning. You're going to take half as much damage as they take. That's great. Have I not already done that? Have you? Off of the uh, second level of that? Absolutely, of the warehouse. (laughs) Got to be raging first. (laughs) Yeah, you know (laughs) it. Don't don't try it unless you're raging. (laughs) Don't try this at home, kids. Well, that's uh, that's pretty awesome, and it's really cool to see, you know, your process in action. Looking at all of those different the combat style, the comparative advantages, and how that absolutely like it applies to monsters, but it also, you know, it applies to considering your character and what your character is good at and what your character is not good at. And clearly, you've been doing this thought process for a very long time, but it just goes to show that once once people get familiar with kind of the steps that you take they can start it becomes easier and easier and easier. yeah oh hell yeah to put this character in the context of a party generally in in any given party a balanced party is going to have a couple of frontline fighters at least one marksman spellslinger or skirmisher and then the rest is entirely up to you but you want one long-range attacker and you want a couple of frontliners to be that defensive line for you and then once you have those things you can do whatever you want and and it's all going to click together if you don't have those things it's harder to make it click and you start have you start having to get really creative with your strategies you can't just charge out and, and take things on at that point but if you are in a party with let's say uh, another frontliner a supporter a uh, spell slinger and a marksman just for example um, your marksman, your spell slinger, they are going to be in the back. They're going to be doing ranged damage. Your supporter's job is primarily to either keep you guys topped up with your hit points or control the enemy to make them uh, easier for you to hit. Like uh, maybe maybe your supporter is a druid with the entangle spell, and that can restrain your opponents so that you can go in and melee attack them with advantage. Or maybe they're casting some kind of enhancement on you, like heroism or bless or whatever. You know, something something to make you even more effective what you do. Because the supporter's role is primarily to help other party members be better at what they do. 
Right. And then your job up in the front is to keep as many members of the opposition occupied as possible and keep them from breaking through and threatening the, the other members of your party. You are not necessarily doing the most damage. It's entirely possible that you're doing some damage, but mostly you're soaking damage yeah. that you can take and other people couldn't. And maybe it's your Spellslinger and the Marksman who are dealing the most damage on your side. Mm -hmm. um, and you're just giving them the space to be able to do so. And that's really, that's the essence of kind of role-playing and, and building a, a balanced party. And even going back to the improv aspect of just knowing where your advantages are, where your strengths are, and allowing others and setting them up to do theirs everyone else at the table and i think that's a huge lesson to take from some of this is is some people have the inclination to try and jump into every role and that's where a party's tactics really start to fall apart but like travis is saying let everyone shine in their role and then you're an unstoppable force well very cool that uh that gives you some things to think about with Zerus. start using those big meaty mitts <laughs> grabbing people jumping more <laughs> yeah smashing them into the ground you have, uh, well, Live to Tell the Tale is available right now on your site. Um, it's a massive 77-page book, and we were learning a ton of stuff. Page four was already getting into some mind expansion stuff, so that was pretty fantastic. There's so much more than we've talked about here to dive into in that book, so everyone uh, listening, check that out. You can get it at themonstersno.com. They can find the links to get it, Keith. Yeah, you can, you can do it from there, or also my personal page is spyandowl.com, right. and uh, that's where the actual store page is. Fantastic. Um, and I'm excited to do and this. you can also look at my photography there. <laughs> right <laughs> that's on. Right. So, Keith, you have another project uh, that you just announced very recently which is related to The Monsters Know. What is that? It is the print and ebook edition of themonstersknow.com. It's a compilation of the analyses of monsters from the Monster Manual, including uh, a number that are not on the website and are not going to be on the website. They're exclusive to Ooh, the book. Juicy. And that is so, going to be available when? Uh, that is going to be available October 29th. Cool. So the spy and owl, the monsters know.com. Both of those is where you can find Keith's work. Thanks to tabletop audio for all the sound effects that you always hear in our show. Thanks Keith so much for joining us again. Looking forward to all of your work. That's going to keep coming out in the future. Thanks um, again for inviting me. It's our pleasure. You can follow us at hook and chance on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, discord, and Reddit. And that's hook and chance. And Keith, if you would uh, be inclined to join us, feel free as we do our outro line. Everybody, thanks for listening. And, and play, play great, great games. games. <laughs> thanks, Keith. <laughs>